Yeah, I think so. I think it's always been a never complete outsider. Like, you know, I'm an antisocial person. Never the, the, the person who's picked on. Never the popular, but always the one in the, you know, the eccentric guy. You're the token wog in the workplace or your name, you know. Yeah, so I've always been in that sort of group, I think. Not because I chose to be in that group. I'd like to have been in the popular group. I think everyone wants to be, everyone wants to be in the popular group. Mm. But then you find people like you and, and then you're in a popular group of your own. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Franco Greco. Franco is the founder of Your Psychologist, a progressive psychology practice focused on helping professionals and executives who feel stuck in their life, career or relationships. Franco has practiced as a therapist and coach for over 10 years, providing individual and couples counselling and specialised coaching to professionals and executives on managing workplace relationships. As someone with over 20 years of executive and corporate experience, Franco has a great understanding of what it is like to be working in complex roles and managing a range of life and work challenges. Franco is also the host of the Personality Portrait Podcast, which I highly recommend. In the podcast, Franco and I discuss sport, upbringing, the impact of peers, taking chances, Franco's diverse career, leadership personality, the traits that help successful people, the effects of COVID and much more. I really enjoyed Franco's insight, honesty, perspective, and knowledge. So now I bring you Franco Greco. Franco, welcome to Moments of Clarity. It's a pleasure to be here, Matthew, on Queen's birthday. Carlin's got a buy, so I'm okay. Yeah, and the doggies do do as well. So um, <laughs> it's a weekend where you can both be neutral, not happy, That's right. not sad. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's a good weekend when we don't lose. <laughs> well, you can't lose the buy. That's we right, did. you can't lose the buy. We got speaking earlier, actually, um, about footy, and and uh, you're a Carlton man. I'm a doggies man. We're in Melbourne, so it's a it's a not only a sport, it's a religion here. And um, me growing up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne as an Italian boy, going for the doggies, and uh, you questioned me on that, and I was saying that my my dad went for Carlton, but because they were too dominant over in the Oh, late seventies, early eighties, that he decided to to give it away and and not go for the yeah. the blues anymore, and went changed league, went to the local VFA and uh, Bullance man, Preston Bullance, and um and that's how I became a doggy because I was given the freedom. Were you given the freedom to choose your team? Uh, was I given the freedom? Um, so I'm the youngest of five children, and my brother. He is a current supporter, so uh, so we became so there's no choice. Oh, I had a choice actually. I did. Choose, my father was a Fitzroy supporter. All right, because we grew up. We, so we you grew up in Northern Suburbs. We grew up in Brunswick, East Brunswick, yep. which is a Northern Suburb. Um, but his first place he, my dad lived in was in Fitzroy, so he supported Fitzroy, and that was sort of my first team. But I became a current supporter because my brother said I can only take you to Carlton games and. That's the only team you get to support. And that was because of Ron Brassi, you know, Ron Brassi. It wasn't, wasn't at the time, but um, had influenced the family supporting Carlton. And apart from the location, um, there's only two, sort of two teams you supported. It was, well, three, actually. It was Carlton, Collingwood or Fitzroy. I've now bestowed that, bestowed that uh, destiny onto my, onto my son who uh, unfortunately has not experienced the success I, <laughs> I did as a supporter of the Blues. But there you go. You know, I was going to say something about your dad, though. If he, if he, if he truly doesn't didn't like the success, then he's not truly a Carlton supporter. 
No, that's right. <laughs> and you um, have the arrogance, you got the arrogance there, big it. time. And and the thing is that he'd probably be better off being a Cullen supporter right now, with the dogs having some success recently. And uh, I know it's time yeah. for him to drop off the bandwagon. Yeah, um, but you know, uh, you usually used to say that though, because um, there was a time when Carlton was, you know, I often thought, what would it be like to support a team that wasn't successful? You know, I did ponder, ponder that at some point. I didn't realise it become a destiny of mine <laughs> that I would support a team that wasn't successful for so many years. But anyway, it's it's a it's a thing about not uh, not at least even entertaining the thought. You, know, you might end up being uh, experiencing it. You know? well, with your background in psychology, do you think there's something in the teams that you support that sort of either define your personality or maybe your personality defines who you end up supporting or how hardcore you are. Do you think that there's a correlation there between sport and personality? I really haven't looked at it. Although I did do a study when I did my undergrad and we looked at that actually was the time when Footscray was, it was in trouble. It was back in 88 Um, and Footscray was, um, might have been 89 when they were going to merge with Fitzroy. Mm, and yeah. uh, and I remember we did a study on um, the uh, psychology of supporters and their efficacy associated with whether they'll support Footscray stand alone or, or, or merging. And, uh, and I think we looked at it from the point of view of efficacy, like this sense of self-confidence. And so we looked at it from that perspective. Uh, it wasn't necessarily why they supported Footscray at the time, but it was more about you know what was their what was the reasoning behind them supporting them existing versus merging with another club and um, so people with high efficacy so you know sense of confidence capacity for things you know things to ch- to change things you know had a strong belief in Footscray standing alone versus you know merging but I, I, I often wondered about about this and I think it's I think it's in some respects uh, it's uh, it's an influence by uh, people around you your peers. Like you know, you you talked a bit about the reason why you support Footscray. Well, you know, you you went to kinder or you went to school, and and you're influenced by your peers. And I think there's a strong thing about personality uh, in research about uh, innate innate parts of parts of your personality, and also how your personality adapts and changes. And often we think parents are the biggest influence on us, but in fact, I think peers trump us, trump parents. Um, peers have a great way of influencing who we are and how we experience the world around us and what's important. Parents don't have that as a significant influence, accepting things like, well, if it's abuse or, you know, significant uh, destabilization in terms of your upbringing. But but peers uh, are a significant influence. Yeah. So so maybe that's part that I reckon for uh, for at least for me, a lot a lot of our uh, at school, okay, everyone supported Carlton. You know, we all lived in Brunswick, Carlton. You know, we went to Maris Brothers School, in North Fitzroy. Uh, oh, there, was, there was a splattering of Richmond supporters, not many of them. And I think geography's got a lot to do with it too. Like you know, like it's your local team, and yeah. So I think I think peers, peers, location, probably the biggest influences. I reckon. Yeah, well, uh, we've got a very similar background as I had my Year Nine campus at year, um, North Fitzroy there on. Uh, yeah, Holden Street. Holden you, Street. Went to, you, you went to St. Joe's, North Fitzroy. Uh, well, I went to Samaritan College. Oh, which yeah, yeah. Merged yeah, Redden and yeah. St. Joe's ended up doing yeah, their um, yeah, amalgamation. Right. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I was in Bell Street 
Preston for Oh, okay. Most you went of, to Ridden. Yeah, Ridden, Immaculate yeah. Heart. Immaculate Heart there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the old yeah. And um and that was for well, most five of the six years, but one year in North Fitzroy for our year nine experience, which was wild, wild times. Uh, and yeah, uh, Holden, Holden Street, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't realize we shared a, uh, a scholastic uh, yeah. uh, similarity. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that until now, but um, but but but, but, I, but I um, but I, I I was, I mean, I was, I mean, I'm much older than you. How old are you? Thirty two. Can you say that? Thirty two, right? I'm, yeah, you know, fifty four. So fifty four next week. Happy birthday. Oh, thanks. Uh, I've got a 20-year 20, 20 lead. But, but I went to Marcelin then too. So after that, uh, year, year 11, 12. So it's a funny funny background, that area. It's uh, uh, but over 20 years. It, the time you went there, it obviously changed quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, it was a good school. I quite liked I mean, it was a poor school, but, you know, it was, it was a good upbringing. I mean, I felt like I learned a lot from it. Actually, a lot of kids actually out of my year, it was, it was, it was sort of uh, the way it was breaking up. I think there was like... Uh, you know, 20, 30 kids in the class, 20, no, 25, 30 kids in the class. Yeah, you know, 10 of us will sit at the front and they ended up at university, but the, <laughs> the 20 at the back, God knows what happened to them. I don't, I don't know. I really kept in touch with them to tell the truth, but, you know, obviously went to trades or whatever, but yeah. um, for, it was quite an interesting cohort, 20, 10%, like at least a third went to university. Yeah, yeah, at that time. I mean, it was quite interesting, yeah. Well, on that, because peers being the most, I guess, important influence on someone growing up, can you delve deeper into maybe some of the major experiences you had as a teen, a kid, a, a young adult um, in life that you know you can remember to this day? Well, I think I think uh, most of my, I mean, whilst we talk, talked about peers, you know, like for me growing up though, uh, I was a bit of an well, such an outsider, but I, I was a bit different to most kids, you know, because I was I was classic. I was interested in things. I was interested in history. You know, I was interested in philosophy you know you know as you can tell i was a it was a i would have been a, a, great, a great kid to invite to a party <laughs> but uh but i was also interested in sport i mean sport was probably the thing that really brought me together by the other my peers you know following sports but probably the most uh, significant year was probably 82 because um that was a year italy won the world cup and Carlton won the grand final you can't get a deal like that you know no. yeah like happening but um and that was a pretty pretty amazing pretty amazing year sporting wise and, um, and I remember that we went to school and probably year, year nine. I don't know what it was like when you went there, but it was 90% Italian, the school. Like it was like, un, it was really unheard of. Like mm. the amount of, like maybe the numbers are too high, but at least at least 80% of the school was Italian background. Like there was a few people from Anglo-Saxon backgrounds, a few Spanish of Vietnamese at the time, you know, you had the, the Croatians. There's a couple of Greek kids, you know, even in a Catholic school. But yeah, we really, that was an amazing year. Like it was amazing. I mean, because obviously Carlton supporters as well. So, you know, it's a good time to be around. And, you know, we, we love playing sport, you know, like uh, it wasn't very, like it wasn't very good representative sport. Like we weren't in that representative sort of space, but we, we engaged quite a bit in uh, sport outside. So I played for East Brunswick, you know, football club and, Although we wore a collar jumper, but you know, mm. <laughs> don't dealt with that. But yeah, probably, probably that. Probably when I went to uni, I found people like myself that was you know, interested in studying, they were interested in ideas, philosophy. You know, you sort of met people that you know sort of shared uh, similar interests, and he felt part of a group. But most of the time, probably, you know, but the people were uh, at school were, you know, everyone called it by your surname, you know. Mm. You know, I remember once I was in class and, and I remember the teacher was Mr. Polar, you know, and he was a quite an interesting 
recluse sort of teacher, very awkward. And because I was interested in politics, I asked a political question. It was it was called consumer education, but we went to politics and and uh, asked a question, and it appeared in the exam. And everyone really got upset about that with me. So, girl, oh, quicko, you know, had you, you know, you asked that, asked, you had to ask a stupid question and got on the exam, and and I said, oh well, I hope I do, like you know. <laughs> but I was um, so I was, I was sort of like I remember once I was reading the study on popularity of people, and I looked at people who are outsiders, complete like like ignored, or outsiders, people who are popular, and people who are, you know, are sort of accepted, but sort of watched on as being like. You know, they're a bit, they're unique, but you know, unique, but they're a bit uh, treated like they're someone who is um, a bit different, right? And I was in that group. I was never one of the popular kids. I was never like picked on. I was never an out, complete outsider, but I was sort of in this group that people sort of sort of looked at and go, oh, you know, he's, you know, oh, it's Greco. That's what he does things, you know, he's, you know, he's always going to go into that sort of stuff, but, you know, he's all right, but, you know, but I was never in the popular group. So, yeah. You know, what I mean. And I guess that's probably it's probably been a feature of my life most of my life probably. So, so you've always been accepted, but but different. Do you think that that's that's sort of gone into your adult life yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's always been a never complete outsider. Like you know, I'm an antisocial person. Never the 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 person who's picked on. Uh, never the popular, but always the one in the. You know, you're sort of like you know, you eccentric guy. You're the guy, to, you know, you're the, the token wog in the workplace, or your name. You know, uh, in a particularly in a public sector, where I worked in most of my life. Or yeah, so I've always been in that sort of group. I think not because I chose to be in that group. I like to be in the popular group. I think everyone wants to be. Everyone wants to be in the popular group. Mm. But then you find people like you, and and then you're in a popular group of your own. <laughs> and <laughs> a lot so of big, but... yeah, that's it. Yeah, and 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 you find a lot of the. Most popular kids at high school probably lose that popularity as they have to enter the workplace. Like they haven't those social norms and, um, you know, giving a little bit back <laughs> probably aren't there for some that, that had all well, the it's attention. Probably well, it's mm. probably true. I never really uh, I haven't tracked them. So yeah. it's funny you say that because I was actually looking up some people today on LinkedIn for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it was because I was preempting this conversation. But <laughs> And I was trying to find – I was just trying to find – I just randomly went there and I was trying to find – if Paul Zordon's listening to this, I, I'm a bit confused by who, where you are now because it says it says that you lived in Moscow, but I'm not sure if that's true and I'm not sure if that's the right Paul Zordon. But <laughs> anyway, Paul, if you're listening – you know, I'm interested in knowing what's happening. I'm interested too. Moscow. Um, would love to hear. <laughs> um, you've, you've sort of analysed that here and I don't know how much thought you've put into your place. I guess we all do it. Fast forward, the Italians were big in number but um, they almost considered themselves to be almost Aussie in a way because there was the, the true, like the Ferrari-loving Italian hat Italians and then there were the... Aussie Italians, in a way, that loved the cricket, sort of had assimilated in a way by the time, you know, the 2000s hit, a couple of generations out from, you know, leaving Italy and knowing to sp- how to speak Italian and all of that. And then you had a lot of the, yeah, Vietnamese, Lebanese, you had a very diverse group of people. We had um, Sudanese people coming into our school later and we learned so much from all these different eclectic groups. But I found that I was very much popular in primary school an outsider from year seven, eight, nine, sort of found my feet again and then ended up in like that popular-ish group 
once I got to year 11 and 12, but I'd sort of abandoned, I'd learned how to, how to do it. You know, it was about being the, the comedian and being, um, I guess the joker and a bit, bit crazy rather yeah, than yeah. that educate. Like I was really going, my, I guess my studies went down while my popularity went up and I, yeah. I probably had to find my feet again at, at towards the end of uni um, or at least my undergraduate to, to get back into the swing of um, caring about the academic side and the intellectual side, which now is what my passion is to, to follow that. Um, so I found my way back there again. But, yeah, I guess in my life I've had that balance of the mojo and finding that energy to be extroverted and around people and sort of a bit of a, not a party boy, but someone that loves to be the centre of attention to then moving to my introverted self where I'm reading and and talking, you know, on podcasts and um, listening to podcasts, watching documentaries, you know, uh, having those intellectually stimulating conversations. I'm I'm always up and down in that that area, which is uh, interesting to ponder. When you, I guess, look at your journey into psychology, was that always the path you wanted to take? Was that where your interests lay? Or, or you mentioned history before. Did you think that you might end up, you know, in another, the humanities of some sort? Just to, just to, just to answer something there, just to sort of ponder a little bit about your, your journey, because I think it is part of... Uh place that people do take i mean you know path that there's always these trade-offs you know there's trade-offs about assertiveness versus attachment and uh you know and what you're describing in some ways is you know whilst it's not you probably don't conceptualize it that way but it's uh you know being connected to a group is more important to you than asserting um yourself um in a way that is uh, seeking solid you know a solitary pursuit or you know, uh, seeking self-interest or self you harmony and connection with people was probably more important. Let's face it, you know, maybe why wouldn't it be? Like, why would you want to be if you're 16, 18, you know, 16, 17, you know, yeah. any other, anything other than having a good time? And good luck to you, like, you know, if you could do that. And and so, but there was probably a whole range of things that, that would have made you different to me. One is personality, you know, our innate capacity to, uh, you know, who we are temperamentally, our experiences that we've had. Um, as well, which I think uh, influences the way in which, you know, for me, I had high unrelenting standards, you know, like I had this sense of I wanted to always do well. Right? Not saying you didn't, but I'm just saying for me, that was my goal, you know, and I spent a lot of time making sure that that was the case, but that, there's a whole range of reasons why that would be, but, uh, but for you, that may not be in there. So, but the bit, when I went to uni though, I, I, I sorry, I know I'm not answering your question, but I'll get to it. I, when I went to uni, I, I did trade off those things. I did have a good time, you know, my personality was quite different in a sense of just being more sociable and more engaging, more extroverted. And I did trade off my usual routine and, and ways of engaging in my studies and actually dropped off. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the high standards that I had normally got to get there. And, um, and psychology was just to segue back into that question was always, uh, I was always interested in people. Right. And um, I remember when, you know, I remember those books, called the job guide as <laughs> books yes yeah, yeah yeah and, and they had all these occupations in your life yeah. and and uh you, know, you can do and and the one that interested me the most was because i told you i was interested in politics right uh was uh was cabinet maker being a cabinet maker because i thought it was about establishing <laughs> a cabinet right and uh and i remember reading it and then i became so disappointed because it was actually cabinet mate <laughs> and um rather than organizing a cabinet and um and um and i remember i remember that, i don't know if you remember this but there was used to be this book used to get used to put 
is that like, and you get it from Coles and uh, you can buy these sipping series and the prime ministers, like all these different prime ministers Australia's had. And I don't know why they don't do it. It's, it's fascinating. I wish I was trying to find it. I think I, I have it in my mom's place, but, and it was like, a, and you could you buy different stamps to put like, you know, Edmund, Edmund all right. and, yep. uh, you know, and all these different prime ministers Australia's had. And uh, I was always interested in politics. So I was always interested in biographies, always in history, but fundamentally I was interested in people. You know, mental health was, was uh, you know, you know something that, you know, was present in my family, present in a lot of families. I was always interested in the history of my grand, my grandfather, my mum's dad. He fought in the war. He was like every Southern Italian, either a communist or a fascist, you know, and he was a fascist, you know, fascist leaning, like yep. whatever that meant in Southern Italy. I would have to say not anti-Semitic, not, you know, anti-Jew, not, not any of those things, but, you know, in Southern Italy, it meant something more complex. Mm. You know, for him, he just felt it meant a break from poverty, right? And his brother was a communist, you know, and he was just telling me the story about, you know, when he was a communist, you know, his father, his, you know, his work, he was, a fat, you know, during the war and they went hunting for communists, you know, and you always tell his brother to go and hide in the mountains and, you know, like, uh, you know, which was always indicated to me that then blood was thicker than politics, right? Important. So families were important. So I was always interested in this this stuff, you know, and um, and so it happened. Um, the only preference I really put down was Latrobe Behavioral Bachelor of Behavioral Sciences because it was the best psychology faculty in Australia, in Melbourne, and and I think I might have put economics too. I can't even remember. And I did that. So psychology was always I was always interested in politics, psychology, and economics. That's probably the you know that was probably the three in history. Always interested in those areas. And I think I, I came too early for psychology. Really, it didn't interest me when I went there. When I went in, I just became disinterested in it. And I realised I probably had to live a life or something. You know, that's probably the part of me. I sort of part of me sort of felt I didn't get into it as much as I sh- probably should have. I obviously did go back to it, but um, but it, it took me on a different path. You know, it um, took me away from. You know, I, I never practiced as a college until last ten, last um, last five years. So, so it's been a journey. Yeah. And what was in between? You mentioned was it economics in between? Well, I I, uh, I did go into so you know when I finished uni, I finished the psych degree. And and it was a bit of a turning point because uh, you know it was middle of the recession. People don't remember the recession in '91, but it was uh, quite bad. As much as as much how bad it was, I've always been quite a supporter of Paul Keating and Bob Hawke. So I always thought that you know that's part of the economic cycle you had to go through. No, I went to actually went back. I went to live in Brisbane from Melbourne. Um, brother had a restaurant there, and and then I became a co-owner there, and and sort of stayed there for about nine years. You know, worked in a, opened another restaurant, and you know, people are sort of suited to hospitality, and some people aren't. You know, and I'm not. Right? Uh, I became completely bored by it. And I remember my greatest part of the day was listening to Philip Adams uh, uh, in uh, about ten o'clock at night. You know, when I was uh, cleaning up the back, you know, uh, and, and or just doing some stuff in the in the restaurant, and uh, people would get really annoyed <laughs> because they, you know, with young kids in the yep. young kids in the restaurant, they, they would want to have music, and I'd, I'd have radio national. Not when the customers are there, clearly, but um, but uh, and I so decided to go back to university. And I did economics and got a master economics, and uh, and then while I still had the restaurant, I decided to apply for about for graduate positions which so i had this restaurant you know i was working i had my own business and then 
decided that I, you know, I, I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. And so I know I had to get an entry level into something. And I remember today, I went, so I applied for about 19 positions, 19 graduate positions, no, 18 initially, right? And I got rejected every one of them. So ANZ Bank, uh, all the banks, all the major merchant banks, consulting firms. So Deloitte, if you're listening, um, EY, if you're listening, all the major banks, if you're listening, you know, you missed out. You missed <laughs> out in a big way, right? But because you're looking for something else that I didn't present to you, right? But anyway, so I applied all these got all these rejection letters, and I remember seeing my brother saying to me, my oldest brother, my oldest brother, he's now passed away, but he said to me, oh, I want you to just give it up, you know. And uh, and I said, oh, look, I don't, you know, I don't know, maybe it was right, and I was, I was giving it down on myself. And then a letter came in to me from this organisation called the Australian National Trainer Authority. They sent me a letter saying, would you like to apply? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that organisation even is. I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And so it happens. It's just a victim of circumstance. It's just, a, you know, it's just factual occurrences, right? So anyway, so I kept on losing the letter. I lost the letter and it kept on finding it again. So yeah, there's another story there. But anyway, so I applied. As so happened, because I was in industry, because I finished my, my I was in the midst of finishing my master's. Um, I did it on labor economics and uh, labor productivity and education. Right, looked at all these factors about on what what influences economic productivity, and it was focused on education. And also because I was a, an industry, because I worked in the industry, I was a small businessman. My friend who I met at uni, uh, he'd got a job as a teacher at a language school just down the road where I was in Brisbane and Spring Hill, and um, and he needed someone to sit on a panel to do like an industry to be, to provide industry advice on developing a training package. So I sat on it with, I think his dad was on it as well because he was a businessman. So he needed some people on it. So I was on it. And I think the only thing I ever said at the meeting was, it's good to be here. And then his dad just basically gave a whole bunch of advice about what it meant to do this training package. And anyway, and it so happens, this organization that, I, that, that asked me to apply was the Australian National Training Authority, which is that developed training packages. And um, and a whole national and a national framework around training the vet sector, the vocational education training sector. Probably people don't think that's a really interesting, interesting organisation, but actually it is a very interesting organisation because it's a national body in Brisbane. Like think about it, mm. there's no national bodies in Brisbane uh, at that time, but this was set up in Brisbane because there's so many things were set up in in Melbourne or in Sydney, so yeah. or Canberra. But anyway, so I went to the interview. I went to the interview, and uh, on the panel was a man called. Uh, Chris, Chris Eccles. And Chris Eccles, I'll tell you who he is in a moment, right? He said to me, uh, he was a general manager at Antis, it's 2IC, and he said to me, because I put on my CV, I buried for Carlton anyway, and he said to me, I've got to say to you, I've got a bit of a bias against you because I know you're a current supporter and I'm as a kill supporter, right? Anyway, so we broke this, you know, we broke a, we broke bread on that and and uh, and he sort of said to me, you know, I know you're still running the restaurant and how are you going to do the restaurant and still be a graduate? I said, I'm going for a graduate position. Like, I didn't even need the money. Like, it was just because <laughs> I had a restaurant. <laughs> but I went into this restaurant. I went into this, this uh, job. And it so happens that, you know, I had the right I had the, refer- the right referees and I had the right thesis and I had the – just everything conspired to the right thing. So let me talk about this organisation, right? It was headed by Terry Moran. Terry Moran – and Chris Eccles, so Terry Moore was the CEO and Terry and Chris, Chris Eccles was the, was the general manager to IC. Guess what they became later in life? Terry Moran became head of the Victorian Public Sector 
in Victoria, head of Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria. Yeah. He became head, he became head of Prime Minister and Cabinet Department under Rudd. Chris Eccles was just most recently head of the Victorian uh, Public Sector Department of Premier and Cabinet. He was also head of New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet. He was also head of Department of Cabinet, Premier and Cabinet in Queensland. So what I'm saying is that this, this organisation found me I got an interview. Everything came into place, and this wrote ended up in. <laughs> I got interviewed by these guys, and and um, and Terry became kind of influence as well for me. He was the head of the organisation. You know, he he took me with him to Education Queensland when he left, and uh, you know they both became quite an influential part of my career. So it was a, it was a, as they say, the ancient Greeks uh, used to say, you know, chance and fate are the uh, two sides of the same coin. You know, so chance events became a fateful occurrence. As someone that sort of started this podcast searching for more purpose, I mean, I'm a teacher that's a, a noble pursuit and um, I guess a restaurateur is, is, you know, there's many people that find that to fulfil them too and it didn't fulfil you at the time but you seem someone that might not be a risk taker either. You know, when you, when you sort of wanted to go back to uni and then find a job, and then that you were knocked back a couple of times. What kept you in in the game? Was it purely that luck of this letter coming to your doorstep? Were you ready to just give it in and say, "Well, I'm destined to listen to Philip Adams to get my, um, you know, the mental stimulation going, and I'll I'll just continue growing this business"? Or were you determined to just continue, you know, fighting for what you wanted to do? Well, I, I think uh, for me. I well, it was not it was eighteen letters, <laughs> by the way. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I do take risks. Yeah, I do. I take calculated risks. You know, what I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm. I've always got plans to sit behind it. If I, I'm, I'm going for a course. There's two other courses I could go through. Right, I cover my bases. You know, quite <laughs> probably too excessively, really. Would you say so, that's risk taking, Franco? Would it, I feel the same way that I would jump into a pool if I had measured how deep it was, that there's no sticks, that, you know, or else I'm not jumping in that pool. And I feel that, like, is that risk-taking behaviour? Because you're sort of removing the uh, the well, chance no, of that, failure. No, chance, chance of failure. No, but, well, well, having said that, I mean, I, I do I do have, I do calculate risks. But you've got, to, you've got to understand a little bit of that time, Right. You know, and I say this in respect. You know, there is a twenty-year difference between you and I. And growing up for me, when I was 80, 1982, we talk about nineteen eighty-two. When you know my greatest sporting, not my sporting year, but sporting supporting year. Yeah. Um, the 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 apparent the the child retention rates were 23 percent. It might have been a bit a little bit higher, but they're not like what they are now. Mm. Like people didn't go to university as much as they did now. Like you know, like post post compulsory education options weren't you know weren't as readily available. And um, and so thanks to subsequent governments, right, we've invested a lot of money in, in getting people engaged. So I was the first one in my, my family to go to university. Mm. Uh, in fact, you know, I can't think of, you know, even my extended family, like, you know, I, I can't think of anyone else that oh, maybe one cousin, two, maybe two, um, that did. And my father came from a very big family, right? But it was because we were, he was the youngest and we were, the, we, we were benefiting from many, many years of, societal change right but go back to your question around risk you know like i think i do take risks i take uh, calculated risks in one level but you've got to have a confidence in yourself you know that you can do something so 
And my father used to always say, you know, like um, you always got to have imagination. You got to always surround yourself by people that are better than you, or at least you can, you can learn from. Better than you in a sense of you can learn something from them. And he's always had that element about him. You know, that's always something I remember him telling me. So I think they are quite significant uh, things that I carry with me. And also got a curiosity. I mean, I think I'm pretty open to experience. Like, you know, if I have to say that, then I also got to say, I also got, you know, high levels of neuroticism, which is, you know, I, you know, I do get anxious and I do worry about things, but, uh, but there's other part that helps me with that. So if I've got to go somewhere, I'll bring four books with me because, you know, I might get bored of one or I'll yep. read the other, right? But for me, in a way, I knew I had to make a change and I wasn't sure where I was going to go, right? But I knew that I was smarter than what I was doing. Not that I'm saying that people who run a restaurant aren't smart, but I, I could do something else with my mind, right? And I knew that this wasn't really me, right? And I wasn't making much of myself. I mean, I, I wasn't enjoying it. So, you know, I got a great capacity for, for work, hard work, I could I could apply that to a whole, whole different things. So, you know, studying, working, studying, you know, I've done that a few times in my life. And there's a cost associated with that too sometimes because, you know, you trade off things right, to do that. But I guess the, the key thing for me, I want to put that story in a way, is that if you stay long enough, something comes back. Like eventually, not you can't get rejected all the time. Mm. <laughs> you know, like there is eventually something's going to come back. It's a, just, a, you know, for me, it, uh, it happened that way. Like, uh, and, uh, and then when you're there, you got to make your luck. You know, the second day I was in that organization, I had a meeting with Terry Moore and he said to me, I'd like you to write a paper. And I wrote this paper. You know, you want me to write this paper on the economic you know, economics of competition in the training sector. And um, I, I knew nothing about the training sector that, that much, but I knew about competition because I was an economist. And um, and so I wrote a paper on it. Like, And he liked the paper. You know, he thought it was really quite a good paper. You know, it's good to have him on your referee, on your CV, you know, as a referee. You know, when I worked, when I moved to Melbourne and worked at Treasury and Finance, and you know, that was you know like a pinnacle for me too. Working in, in a central agency in a, in, a, in a Treasury, you know, like this is again, there was a couple of organisations that I that I applied for. Like Treasury is one of them. Actually, Northern Treasury was one of them. I, I remember writing, writing that one, and they they sort of said, no, you know, you're not. Um, you haven't been successful on this occasion. I thought I'd write a really interesting letter. I said, you know, I want to learn my craft and I want to become an economist and I want to work in, you know, sort of a burgeoning, you know, territory. And anyway, look, can I say sometimes you, you the ones who reject you are probably okay because, you know, who, who knows what you would have ended up. But for me, risk is um, it's always calculated. But, uh, you know, it's not a, yeah, is it a question of saying you, you've got to take a punt on yourself, don't you? Yeah. Is that the key then? to success in a way is it that you have to feel confident but also be a risk taker be open be curious like, what does success i guess mean to you and then how do you f- define both with your you know background in understanding people but also your your experience too what has made you successful you've you've alluded to many different things but also what do you see in others that are successful around you well it, it what works for me may not work for other people because um if you think about success, success, being a successful person in a workplace, you know, in a career context is, is being agreeable and conscientious. Like if you get on with people uh, and you're very good at, you know, completing things, you're, you know, you're disciplined, um, you know, you've uh, got a level of confidence in yourself. You know, these are two traits that we know uh, are good ways. And actually if you're extroverted, you know, more likely to, you know, sociable, achievement striving, uh, you can assert yourself not to the extent that you, you know, you, you, uh, 
you, you're totally dysfunctional, um, you know, you're going to get on, you're going to get a hit in life, right? Now, like as anything, these are all measures, aren't they? Like, you know, because not everyone's going to have the right criteria, personality traits to get along with things, you know. So for me, what's always sometimes held me back a little bit in the workplace maybe has been my emotional reactivity to things, right? And it's only later in life that I really discovered actually, you know, I don't really want to work to anyone else. I like to work on my own. I have my own business, you know, and that works for me because, you know, I've got a certain level of autonomy uh, to do things. But if I think about it, I don't know, you probably come across these people in your life too, principals, you know, they think, how do they become principals? You know, how do these people become leaders, you know, in organizations? They've got no idea about anyone else, but they deliver something, don't they? They deliver something for someone because someone obviously sees something in them. So I think there is uh, sometimes, you know, like I remember Grant here, he's a bit the secretary. He's now the Auditor General of the, of the National, National Auditor General Office. And um, he used to be the head of education, and I was, and he used to be head of treasury. Anyway, I worked in those organizations and he once said to me, a lot of people apply for jobs. Like I said to him once, you know, I want to apply for this job and do you think I could do it? And he said, you know, um, a lot of people can apply for those jobs. There's a whole bunch of people that can get to do that job. It's a question of what people think about you like versus other people. Like it's just a matter of, it really ultimately sometimes it's just a matter of you could be the right place at the right time. Like, Seriously, because and then if you just put just to present yourself enough enough of those occasions, you're going to get something eventually. But people sometimes give up, right? They say, "Oh, well, I can't be bothered," or they, they take it really personally, mm. or uh, or they uh, get offended by it, or you know, they don't look at themselves and say, "Okay, well, what can I change about who you are?" I remember once to get into the executive level in the public sector, I had to uh, I was struggling to get the job. Like people identified me as you know a high potential person, but never enough to get here, right? And so I had to really look at myself and say, okay, well, what am I actually, how am I presenting myself? So I listened to feedback, try to get insight from that, try to uh, engage myself in different projects. And so so you have to you have, to have a sense, sense of reflection of who you are. Otherwise, you know, I think you sort of then, if you just keep on doing the same thing, you know, it may not end up getting there. So, so you've got to, be able to one persist and persevere, but also you've got to adapt. Otherwise, you know, you're sort of stuck. Yeah. I feel that um, very much is the stage I'm in too, with constantly being, you know, someone knocking on the door and saying, you know, you're, you're the next or you're ready for the step up to, you know, leadership and, and um, I guess yeah. more executive level within schools, but even outside of schools, you know, a couple of job interviews actually I've had in the last sort of 12 months that, I've been second or or third or, you know, in, in roles that are quite not graduate levels because I, I as someone I feel that doesn't want to take many risks, I want to jump ship into something that I'm as stable and as well off as I feel at the moment yeah. in teaching. Yeah. And, you know, almost getting there and and I keep telling myself those exact things that you said, which was, you know, find the the one way that I can get better and that's through feedback or and, and, and reflection but also if you stop now, that's it. You know, you're not going to find anything. You need to continue. You need to constantly strive. And this podcast, once again, uh, I often felt like I was a hypocrite intellectually or, or philosophically. I had an idea of who I was or wanted to be, but then the actions didn't follow that. And I felt a little bit like a hypocrite because I'd say, you know, to lose weight, you've got to do this. And then I wasn't you know, following practice what I preach or to um, become a better person, you've got to do A, B and C. And and I necessarily wasn't doing that. And I found that looking at the people that 
sort of get places around me, they may not have been smart, the smartest person in the room or, the you know, the fittest on the footy field or whatever, but they just applied themselves constantly and forever and didn't take things personally, you know, take the feedback and, and implement it. So I feel talking to different to different people like yourself but and many others helps, I guess, find how how we can continually push forward and strive to to do more because I'm worried at the moment, let's say, about the climate crisis or about my impact on the environment, for example. Now, it's very difficult to to do anything about that or, or you know, or in the world of social justice, you're going to be fighting a losing battle if you think that your first action is going to be successful or you're going to make a difference. Even with 20 actions, you've got to sort of live your life by... I guess your set of values that you set for yourself, whether that's I'm going to volunteer and volunteer and volunteer and I may get knocked back by, you know, not helping those homeless people or not clean, that creek was dirty after I cleaned it up yesterday. You know, whatever it is, you've just got to keep keep going and that's more of that social and environmental context. But on a personal level, I feel that that's, that's true too. What do you take from that? Yeah. I see roughly between 35 to 40 people a week in my clinic, you know, my private practice. And um, I like to think that I'm improving their, you know, that they're improving their lives, you know, and they stay with me for, they stay with me, clients stay with me. And I see couples, you know, 30% of my clients are couples, the individuals, the remainder. I feel like actually, you know, it's about making their life better because, you know, I don't want them to, I want them to reduce negative symptoms about themselves but also want them to improve positive symptoms about themselves and live more fulfilling lives and with that with that i think i think i got more of an impact at that level but having said that when i was working in uh public service public service right and um you know and i worked in public policy or you know i had a capacity to influence people at a more substantial level you know than just for a policy you know uh, that you you worked on but you can't see it, you know, you can't see the impact of that, mm. you know, immediately. And so, uh, so you think about, you know, so if that's your thing, you know, that you want to see, I ask you this question, right? If you think about your motivation, right? So you've got an extrinsic motivation, which is your rewards that you get, you know, the money, you know, the, the, the position, the um, whatever that you know they're, they're more extrinsic stuff external rewards but the intrinsic ones right that you have which are probably more sustainable and ongoing uh, and they're things like autonomy your capacity to to you know when you teach you know your capacity to influence what happens in the room like that's actually the, the most important thing that happens in a classroom is your relationship with your kids it doesn't matter actually the school culture or that influences it you know, it's actually your, your principal doesn't understand will probably think he's the biggest or she's the biggest influence, but in fact, you're the biggest influence, right? Because that's what we know from studies, right? We know from studies that you, you as a teacher have got the most biggest impact on that, on those kids in that class. So you, you've got a level of autonomy there. You've got a level of self-efficacy. So there's part of you uh, building capacity, capability. Now that's a part, you know, you've been, how long have you been a teacher now for? Yeah, ten years now. Or ten years, right? Yeah. So, 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 you're, are you a better teacher now than you were when you first started? That's a good question. I think I know a lot more theoretically, but to be honest, maybe because I started at a small Catholic primary school, and now I'm a sort of specialist teacher with a curriculum sort of role as well. 
I've got my hand in many baskets. But what I feel is my best relationships were early on in my teaching um, with kids. And I felt that autonomy and I felt that self-efficacy. I did, I really did feel I was changing their lives and they were changing my life. And now I feel like I can write some great curriculum and, and help the school, you know, write certain policy and I feel more strong towards that. And then I sometimes do forget that I am the most important person for those two hours a week or three hours a week in the lives of those kids. I do forget yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. But Matthew, but Matthew, I think what you're talking about is a third part, which is actually purpose. Mm. Because, you know, you could do your job, right? I, I, I can see that in you, what you're saying to me, right? You can do this job, right? And you feel like you can do it and you feel like you can really get you get a lot of out of it. But that's the purpose. So the third part is relating your capacity to relate to to to, to a purpose. And my inner job that allows me to feel like I can do the things I really want to do, right? So you might have autonomy, you might have competence in yourself, you might have a sense of I can do this capability, but is it a purpose there? So at the moment, I've got a job that has, does all three, right? So I'm pretty happy, but I've never had that in the, well, I've had fleets of that in my past, but never completely. There's been times in my life from a work point of view that I've experienced those three elements but this job my job the job i do now as a psychologist i have all three i've got a capacity to influence the way i do my work i've got a capacity to do the sort of work that i want to work on i'm learning every day and growing every day in what i do i'm a better psychologist now than i have ever been mm. and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get better right just it's gonna happen because i have professional development i seek people out i'm always learning I'm going to get better at it. It's just with time, you always get better things, right? You're going to kick on your left foot, you're going to kick on your right foot, you're going to hand pass, you know, like you're going to do that, right? You're going to kick longer. And if I keep my hearing up, right, my hearing doesn't go, I'll be, I could just keep on doing this for the next 20 years if people still want to see me, right? But it's also part of the relatedness. I feel like I'm actually doing something that's important. And that's probably the thing, you know. And what I learned, I guess, in life is that you sometimes need to take sideward steps to do that. You know, if you think about a career in the public sector, so this is generally the line that people generally take. You know, you you know you're in VPS, Victorian public sector. You're you know you're the call of VPS staff, non-executive. Then you get to the executive level. Then you go up to executive level higher and you get to higher positions. And and it'd be as a point where I just actually I just I reached my ceiling. Like I wasn't able to get any higher. People didn't see me that way. It doesn't matter what I saw about myself. Like. I could see myself that way, but in the end, people didn't see me that way. So, and um, and maybe I didn't change their perceptions of it. Maybe there was a part of me that was holding me back. And uh, I think part of me was maybe I just didn't work want to work hard enough enough to be, to do it. Maybe mm. that's probably one thing. The other second part was probably I was a, not as agreeable to people. You know, I was actually letting people know a lot more what I thought, which actually is encouraged, but on one level. But this carries in another level, right? Yeah. People actually don't want to don't want to hear. <laughs> I was picked up this talking. I was once um I went to the executive level, I got this job, uh, this lady who uh who's a, I was two I see in this organization. So and she said, I picked you because you're different to what I was. And I thought that's a, that's always the, the clear statement that you're gonna fail in that job because because there's no way she's gonna pick you, there's mm. no reason that's gonna tolerate be someone different to you. So I, I did side jobs, you know, like I went to side directions and picked jobs that I that I liked, and uh, and did some interesting things. But I went back to study again, you know, went back to study psychology again because I, I felt that 
Yeah, I, I just thought to myself, you know, I can't see myself being in it. I was back to where I was when I was in the restaurant. I couldn't see myself doing this job for the next, you know, 20 years, you know. So I went back to study and, and then I became a psychologist. Yeah. I feel like you're probably working harder than ever in a way. So you said you weren't willing necessarily to work hard enough in that, I guess, to get to the next level in the public service. Is that because you sort of felt that it wasn't aligning with your passions, that you, when you couldn't see yourself there, what's the point of putting, you know, probably the hours? I know that, you know, you've, you've built your own website, your own place. You've, you've probably have to, as a business owner, you've got your clientele, but then you've also got your, you know, the tax to do, the, the business operations, you've got your podcast, you've got all of this stuff that's building probably maybe more work, but because it's for you and is that, is that the difference? Well, there's a difference. I, let's put it aside. Actually, I did. I was still working hard in the public sector, but of course, it was, yes. It, it, but but it was. Um, I wasn't enjoying. It. I was hitting. Like, mm. You know, uh, I feel like if I did need to go higher, it was a different type of life that I need to live. Yeah, and I just I didn't want to do that. But, but but tell the truth, you know, if I was picked in that, if I, in all honesty, if I was picked and selected into higher roles, I probably would have done them. You know, because probably a part of me that probably needed it at the time too. But you know, sometimes. Things don't come your way for a reason, like, and somehow you work it out. Like you work it out in a different way. So you know you're going for all these jobs, Matthew, and you know, and it leads you down a particular different different path. Like it's it's remarkable how that tends to happen. You think, and then you reflect on it. Maybe it's you know we attach meaning to it, but maybe not even there. But we attach a, a sense of a story to it, and so we think, oh well. If I did do that, it's a sliding door moment. And what would that have been like? You know, you've gone into this podcast, you're doing this podcast, right? So you're getting a lot of insights into yourself. You know, you're developing this project around understanding what it's like to, you know, to ask, you know, people some key questions of life, you know, like maybe the questions you're asking yourself about yourself. And uh, maybe they'll give you a clue to who you are. Who knows what will happen, you know, in a year's time, right? So it's, uh, I guess, I guess the issue is that we, we are notoriously bad at predicting the future we're, we're shocking at it like we are bad at it i see a lot of my own clients in myself like who would have known you know three years ago you and i would be talking today mm. at this podcast like what would that have happened you know and i'm glad i met you like i'm glad you were talking right so it's imagine what's going to be like in the next year what other person you're going to meet that's going to be far more influential for you than i am right you know that might change your life who would I have known that I would have met, gone to this organisation I knew nothing about, and I came across Chris Eccles and Terry Moran? Like, what's the chances? Mm. But these these things happen all the time. So we're notoriously bad at predicting the future because we're constrained, you know, by things. That's why grief and loss is not necessarily a mental health issue. Right? It's not a mental health disease, right? Because we we know that depression around grief happens. We get lost and we feel this desolate and we feel completely burdened by the world and we think there's no way out of it but we get out of it like you'd be surprised you know like unless you're my great grandmother you know my great my great my grandmother now passed away but she walked black for most of her life you know when my grandfather but she had the best life after my grandfather mm. died sorry i know a lot of people might listen to this might know me but no and now my grandfather but she did like you know he died in 1980 and she lived to 2016 like she lived another 36 years mm. and her life was so much better without him you know, all due respect to him because he's a nice man, but she would have thought that when he died. Mm. 
And was she able to actually embrace that, do you think? Do you think that she or, or the black it was a constant reminder, yeah, I had to, I have well, to she wore black, forever. That's right. Yeah. Well, she wore black, she wore black for a period of time. Then she sort of, you know, she you knows, you know, like they, then they uh, then they moved to brown. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they introduced some other colour, you know. <laughs> yeah, like a scarf, a red scarf. Like a, like a yeah. scarf, and then they sort of move on. But but you know, like she, you know, she lived all her life living with some people. Like she lived in our house, right? She lived always with us, right? So it was always three generations house. And then for some reason, you know, I moved to Brisbane. My parents moved to Brisbane with me. And she was on her own. First time ever in her whole life. At uh, First time in her life at 77, she started living alone. You know, she never predicted that. She thought, oh, God, how am I going to deal with that? But she did. So I guess what I'm saying is we're shit at predicting stuff. Mm. And uh, and we often overestimate the impact that this might have and underestimate the, the, our capacity to actually change and to be have a positive outcome. So in his time, I who knows where you're going to be? Where would you like to be? It's a great question. I was asked this yesterday on a on a COVID safe walk with my cousin, <laughs> and we were talking about yeah, we're both sort of in the same boat. You know, both very much extroverted. She was in theatre and all that, and and then we both sort of felt with the most recent lockdown, obviously in Melbourne, um, two weeks now, sort of just wanting to live in a cave almost, you know, like we just both said it like all of a sudden we both feel like, you know what, this is, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but just want to escape from the world for a little bit. So if you asked me what I wanted to be in a year, three weeks ago, I had all this energy and all this um, fire in the belly to, to say, I'm going to keep striving to have more impact on the world. I would have said, I'm going to find something where I feel maybe more valued you know, not just a number, someone can replace me tomorrow. I want to have an impact with my unique set of knowledge and skills and, and personality to have a big impact on others in improving people's lives somehow um, or society in, in some way. That would be my grand plan, but I don't know what that looks like. And then all of a sudden, maybe yesterday I said, but maybe it's just finding a little farm and, and growing veggies is my is my destiny, you know, like hiding away and reading books and, and you know, selling my uh, garlic on, at a farmer's market. You know, I've got two sides of me and, and this is from before when I said I've got two sides of me that you've made me think of where on one level I want to be, you know, Matthew Sortino, someone calling my name on a microphone or something and or, or, you know, wanting to call me up for advice. And on the other, it's just to sit by a fire and and just live life to its fullest and being grateful without any of the external noise, you know, affecting my mental health or whatever. And I, I just don't know which pathway sometimes. So that that's my answer today. In a week's time, so, someone might call me and I've got the energy back and I'll say I'll never want that farm life. But, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, you know, it's the it's the it's the part that you feed, isn't it? Like it's, uh, and maybe maybe it's a maybe it's the the part that's you know that that you're talking to today is the one that you know is responding to the fact that you know we had a a, a maladata you know uh, lockdown placed on us and as we was you know masks outside and don't get me wrong I'm not anti mask or anti lockdown but you know I'm a bit fatigued by it a lot of people are fatigued by it you know, a lot of people are fatigued by it they don't understand why. While we, you know, while I was watching Italy versus Turkey the other day, mm-hmm. and I saw all these, you know, Italians in the stands and they think there's a, there's a country that's lost, you know, 30,000 30, people through death, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the stand just, you know, couldn't care less. And there we are wearing a mask, we have to go down the shop down the road to buy, you know, buy a loaf of bread. Like, it, 
anyway, that's for another time. But but it's, it's what you feed, isn't it? Like, I guess the point though, there in a way is that you're right. Like, you know, you're stuck in a moment where you're sort of thinking, you know, well, I like to do that. But there's a part of you that wants to do that. You, you know, who am I? What are my motivations? And do I really want to do that? What does it mean? What does it care if my name's not read, read out? You know, that's true. That's probably a part of you that feels that way. There's another part of you that does want that to happen. You know, does want to influence the world, impact on the world. And I'm just saying, is there a way that you can look at that and say, you have got a job that does that. Mm. You know, you have got a, work, a workplace that, you know, think about people. I've got, kid, I've got clients that come in to see me and they say, I had this shocking, horrible teacher in my life that always put me down, you know. Mm. It wouldn't it be good if they could say I had this great teacher in my life that could have done you know that that you know, taught me all this stuff and gave me all the you know motivation and uh, inspiration and you know what I mean I don't know like that may not be where you want to end up you know you might want to do other things right uh, this podcast is a bit of a teaching exercise isn't it mm-hmm. I think I'm always drawn to it I, I do think I think sometimes I get jaded by maybe the system maybe the surrounds you know you you mentioned um, that. Everyone thinks they've got a big influence, you know, the the education minister, the the policy writers, the curriculum writers, this, that, you know, the bodies that come in, the NAPLAN, whatever. But you do have the biggest influence. And I think it just comes down to maybe organising priorities or organising goals or something where, and I say this often, is in teaching I feel that we do have one of the most important jobs in the world. You know, it's up there with emergency services and nurses you know whatever there's it's a it's an essential role and we found that even more with um when the big lockdown happened and people were losing their mind with their kids at home and and the education of those kids just sort of dropped rapidly um even with great smart intelligent giving parents at home eventually it broke them because they had their own lives to lead and um well for some anyway and you realize how important the job is and and your role is but Sometimes we're we're told that you've got to capture their critical thinking, their creativity, you know, their well-being, be this vessel of wonder for these kids. But then, you know, you go into that classroom and it's still like it was back at, you know, St. Joe's, it's North Fitzroy, or, or where it's sit down, shut up, um, listen to the teacher. You know, if you're at the back, you know, as long as you're not bothering me, you can just, you know, do your own thing and... Um, not learn, but don't bother me as a teacher. And and we and I have spoken to this um, recently with a guest that said, you know, you fall back on your own habits. And I think we do as a as teachers, but also as schools, that we we understand modern education and what it needs to be. It needs to be a place to foster curiosity and inquiry and and critical thinking and and future focused learning. You know, it's not about rote learning all the prime ministers in a row. It's about understanding the importance of democracy and how that... So, but, 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 you see, I actually would have liked someone to have taught me about testing me on that because, you know, I would have told them all the prime ministers. That's right. <laughs> so so what, what I'm saying is actually, it's actually, it's actually, I actually think we've got it completely, like, I, I, I make it too complicated. We just want someone to believe in them. Like, mm. I believe in you, right? You know, like, my, my daughter is in uh, year five. And like, she had a, a grade two teacher. It was shocking. Like, shocking. Like, you know, didn't believe in her, didn't believe she had any capacity in mathematics. Terrible. Anyway, they brought this, she was a grade three, this guy came in, Mr. Fountain, you know, supports Lester. Um, he's a, you know, a nice English man. He was a, he was a, he was a teacher who wasn't uh, even on a permanent staff. Like he was 
filling in for someone for the year. And it was the best teacher she ever had. Actually, the best teacher of all the kids, that all my kids, you know, best teacher that, that all my kids have had, you know. He had had a simple, and I asked, like, subsequently years later, I asked, uh, you know, a couple of years later, I asked uh, a couple of her and her friends, we took them to Luna Park, and I said, you know, what, you know, what do you think about maths and, you know, English? And they go, oh, you know, I asked, they still remember Mr. Fa- Mr. Fountain. Like, you know, what a great teacher he was, you know, and that the, he tr- didn't treat him, he treated him with respect, didn't think they were stupid, didn't, didn't, didn't talk down at them. You know what? That's the way you mm. talk to kids, right? You don't talk down to them. Like, you know, you treat them like they're, they're actually got something to offer, right? They can learn something, you can believe in them. And that's what we do in therapy sessions. Guess what? You know, if I, if I had a client that came in and said, you know, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious, I go, oh, well, stupid idiot, you. Like, what do you mean you're feeling anxious and you're feeling depressed? Like, you know, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You're not living in a third world country. What's, I mean, if I said that to them, I mean, there is a, so there is a therapist, Albert Ellis, who lived in, he was born out of New York. He had rational motive therapy and he would talk to his clients a bit like that. He goes, What's wrong with you? Get a, get the, get a grip of your life. Come on. I mean, there's nothing wrong with you, is there? So on your head, like you know, I'm sure he didn't say that, but you know, like he, he was pretty <laughs> forward, right? Maybe if we did that to our kids, you know, that's uh, that's really interesting, I, and I think that's a great take. And I think it is all about relationship building, and maybe it's we're too focused. No, it's, on... But but Matthew, it's not relationship building. It's actually it's actually it's more than that. It's actually being attuned to the person mm. you're with. So so what I like about you right now, right, is that you're attuned to me, right? You 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 understand what I'm saying. You're listening intently to what I'm saying. And you're reflecting back to me what what you think, um, what the themes of my life, and you're trying to piece it together for me, and you're trying to reflect it back to me, right? You try to understand what I'm saying, and I actually think it's more than it's more that, right? It's more connecting with someone, right? And that's what kids remember. They remember someone connecting with them, and so you know, if you connect with someone, guess what? They can be more creative. Mm. I don't know how somehow we got to find something, create this creativity, because we're all creative. Like we actually got a brain in our head. And there's no such thing as an uncreative person. We're all creative. Like I don't know somehow. Like some people are more artistic, but we we've got we've got stories in our head all the time, right? So we, of course we're creative. Like I don't know what the hell we're talking about. I don't know if that where that takes you, but. We've reflected, I guess, on ourselves and and how we've ended up, I guess, where we are. But now with your background, you know, in psychology, getting back into it and and on a level from when you were an undergraduate now to actually practicing, are there some things that you just fall back on every time? You've mentioned connection. Is it it as simple as that, connecting with someone? When people come and see you as as a couple, as in whatever facet they do, is there almost an underlying theme that everyone brings or or is it just really different? Well, when people come to see me, I explain to them that I'm interested in their childhood. I'm interested in how they, how they relate to their parents. I'm interested in their, uh, their personality. I'm interested in how they see themselves. I'm interested in what's grappling with them at the moment and what's holding them back. And we're going to work it out together. And uh, whatever problem they come with, I see through the same lens, you know, the same way of thinking about it. Now, they might come with anxiety, they might come with depression, they might come with anger man- anger issues, they might come with addictions. But it pretty much starts with a wound that they, they have, 
a wound that they've experienced. It always fascinates me how people don't reflect on their lives, don't connect things, and I'm a connector for them, connecting stories about they've forgotten parts about themselves that they haven't been integrated, bring to surface stuff. So there's a commonality to the way I work with people and um, and similar things come up. Dad was not great. My mum was distant. My mum was controlling. My teachers never, no one really believed in me. I was always given a lot of freedom to do a whole range of things in my life and that was great, but I, I don't understand what it means to have any limits. So there's always this, what's common is actually this unmet need, uh, unmet emotional need. Mm that's consistent and we all got them because it's, it's part of humanity, right? Cause we're all got something that's, I mean, I've got it, you've got it. We all got it. You know, I've probably got a sense of a little bit about you, what I think maybe the things that maybe are holding, you know, maybe holding you back emotionally, right? You know, there's need to feel like you're, you you can do something in the world, right? Mm. That you can be, have an impact on the world, right? So there's a, there's a part here about, you know, I want recognition. I want acknowledgement, you know, did you get enough of that? growing up, Matthew, you know, did you, did, you know, that's an honest question, right? Mm. Like for me, it was things like, um, you know, feeling safe, you know, feeling um, feeling that people got my back, you know, like feeling validated, you know, feeling that, uh, you know, that people are going to be there. And that often, you know, so for me, one way of getting that done is for me to be good at everything I did, to try to be good at all the things and being a good boy, right? Being a good person, right? Right? to be yeah. the perfect person I could possibly be. And uh, there's been times in my life where I've failed miserably at that. You've got to get in with the client to understand their humanity, their issues. Is it, they're like you, but they've come to see you. Mm. What I'm getting at is that there's successful people that have had massive trauma and, and people that struggle in life, you know, that have probably never had to meet really painful things like on an, on an outsider's level. What is it that allows people to then take that step and and really um, not make something of themselves alone, but also you know be a person that everyone else around them wants to be around? You know, how do you become something yeah. like that? Well, I mean, if you're successful, you may not go and seek therapy, right? Look, you know, I mean, I think there are some personality traits that lend you to feeling, you know, that you get better associated with uh, better mental health outcomes. You know, if you're more extroverted, you're more capacity to engage with people, be some more sociable with people, you know, you're going to be around people more, right? Mm. Uh, if you're agreeable, then, you you know, if you're hot, you know, if, you, if you're a person who gets on with people, then people want to be around you, right? If you're conscientious uh, and task-oriented and get things done and people more likely find you reliable, you know, you know like, and so you're, you're, you're probably going to get a lot of uh, more capacity people can say, oh, gee, you could do that job, right? If you are low in neuroticism, then you're more likely to uh, not experience the emotional reactions to, to triggers. So you, you're more likely to feel less anxious and less angry and less depressed and, you know what I mean? Like, so, so you, you, you know, you're probably going to experience more positive emotions, you know. If you're high open to experience, then the world's a far more interesting place rather than black and white and narrow and rigid, right? So that gives you a bit of a base. If you're predisposed to those things that I just mentioned and in, in that direction, then you're more likely to experience, you know, what they call a, a dandelion personality rather than awkward, mm. you know, personality, right? So this is sort of this part of you that can, then you encounter a whole range of things in life, right? So trauma happens or something negative happens in your life. 
developmentally early in life, then you develop a, a more adaptive coping mechanism. Uh, and then you develop a narrative about yourself, right? Then it says, okay, well, you know, uh, oh, yeah, these, these things did happen to me, but, you know, I worked through it and I got this the other end of it. That's sort of like edges you in the same space, right? That sort of like stacks the cards in the right place. But there's people who might have good things happen to them, but they're so negatively, uh, their traits are so negatively skewed to one direction that they contaminate them, even good mm. stories. And we know that that happens, you know, like, oh, you know, you probably hear it in the Italian cultures quite a bit. <laughs> like, oh, the, you know, the wedding was great, but, oh, you know, but the food was terrible. Like, you know, well, the, you know, like, to, you know, it was a rainy day or, you know, like it's, it's all this negativity that's thrown on top of it. So they're like, it's almost like they contaminate stories. And people sometimes do that too. Like they just don't really understand what's happened to them. You know, the good things that have happened in their life. Mm. Um, but having said that, I, I do think that the people find it difficult, even successful people find it difficult to, because um, it's part of humanity. We get depressed, we get low, we, get, we, we don't see it. You know, it's don't see it in people. People experience it. So I'll, I'll give you a general picture, but I think, I think generally speaking, though, uh, people who are fulfilled are more likely to recognise that, that maybe these things happen in life, you know, and they've got a capacity to recognise that actually, you know what, you know, I'm going to persevere through it. And they uh, they get stuck in it. They've got more flexible, they've got a psychological flexibility that they don't get stuck in the moment, you know, they get, they get stuck in that context. People are, especially in Melbourne, finding, you know, something like COVID transforming, you know, taking away maybe those things that you said were natural. If you're an extrovert, you get your opportunity to talk to people when you're out, you know, you're at your job, you know, in person, and that's your therapy. You know, you haven't had to struggle with um, the mental demons, I guess, or whatever it might be, because you've always had a personality that allows you to um, do the right things just naturally by default. Uh, you know, you're you're exercising, and all of a sudden, that sort of crashed down around many people. I found myself personally actually pressing the pause button last year at the right time. My partner was pregnant, we were doing a renovation. Um, I was sort of umming and ahhing about my career. You know, all of these things started this podcast. So I was benefiting while a lot of people around me that I would have said that, well, that were fine, all of a sudden weren't fine, you know. Yeah, that. Yeah. And now I, I do see people on tenterhooks a little bit around me, you know, just like what's going to happen next, a bit more anxious, a bit less control, you know, not making plans for the future. And that's starting to to stifle people. Um, would there be something that you can recommend or that you've noticed that is a great balancer for people that are maybe um, suffering during this time that would never have normally suffered in the in the first place? Is there something that you can suggest that maybe some people that would have felt really strong and not that mental illness is a weakness in any way, but they would have felt personally just like in control of it all and and now they're starting to slide into a place that they haven't ventured before. What would you suggest for those type of people? Yeah, that's a, well, it's a good question. I think I see it more, this issue more now than during the first lock, the second lockdown. Like, so we had that, remember that little mini one? Yeah. And, you know, everyone enjoyed that because it was novel and unique and, yeah, started making bread and you know, know <laughs> uh, yeah, making some other sauce. But then it was the second one, and the second one went for a long period of time, and 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 people sort of recognised that you know that they were struggling a bit. But yeah, I, I I think I think part of it is acknowledging that actually the adverse event, the events that we've had in the last year and a half, 
are, are taking its toll more now than they did during the, the largest lockdown. And it's it's a natural process. Now, Dr. Rob Gordon, who's a psycho- clinical psychologist who worked a lot with bushfires and extreme events uh, impacting on people, uh, would always say that there's this trauma sort of feel, gets itself played out, you know, 12 to 18 months later, you know. Uh, so what people are experiencing now, and I experienced it today myself, you know, I was at Cheston, wearing my bloody mask and thinking to myself, what the hell's going on here, right? You know, like, you know, I was getting angry about it. I'm not, I'm not naturally an angry person, but I was getting angry about it, cursing the government. Like, you know, I'm not even a, an anti the government. Like, it's just like, you know, I just, I just, I felt angry about it. And, uh, and I think there's, there's parts of ourselves personality-wise that change. Like, you know, these are the things that it's almost like changes a bit. It's sort of like, oh, you know, or, or, you know, you start realizing I don't like being socially active. I always thought myself as an extroverted type person, but in fact, you know, with lockdown, I become more introverted. Like, you know, I like my own, I don't like going out as much mm. right? because maybe because it's not happening. So I find it a bit discomforting when you have a bigger event. Like it's like, it's uh, what's happening is that you've been exposed to things that are, are out of your normal experience. And it's okay to feel what we're feeling. So one is uh, is accepting actually. It's okay to feel what you're feeling, and it, it too will pass, right? I think that that's one part of it. If you just let it, just let it, just ponder in your mind that it's actually just a phase we're going through. And the other part I think also is acknowledging that we could cope with this. So you can cope with all this feeling, you know. With you know, and I see this with some of my clients. They drink a lot. They eat a lot. You know, they don't do any exercise. You know, that it's a, it's like a maladaptive coping mechanism, mm. and you can feed that, right? You can feed that, and be careful what you feed, because if you feed this coping mechanism, then that's all you do. You're just going to cope, right? And so, and so, what I encourage my clients to then think about is to is one accept, look at how they're coping. Is it is it actually coping effectively? Are they the right way of coping? Is there, you know, what is the what is actually going on behind that coping? What are you really coping against? And it could be that they they they're scared, you know, they lack of self control. They don't know what they're doing, right? They don't they, they don't feel like they can, uh, you know, how, when are we going to get out of this? You know, they might be feeling distant from people. Okay, well, okay, so let's be let's open up another part of them, which is actually okay. Well, let's explore another part of ourselves. Let's explore a growth part of ourselves, that is. Uh, be curious about the world. What can I do? You know, go back to the first lockdown when we started making, you know, bread and you know, making, you know, doing the Italian version of the sausage. If you could do it, because maybe you can't do it at that time because it was it was autumn. It was like you know, autumn it was winter, but now you go into a different period. Maybe it's winter in winter. You make your sausages, right? Yeah. Like maybe there's a part of us that really can start exploring parts of ourselves. You know, start a podcast. You know, like whatever that is, like that you could do just to get you sort of getting a little bit of control back into your life, you know, because you can, no one can control the way you think curious about something. Like no one can control the way you think about it. Like, you know, you're only limited by your imagination. So there's a third part, which is really then thinking, okay, what sort of person do I really want to be? You know, what's the value that I want? What's the way I want to live my life? And how do I do that more effectively rather than just coping? And the fourth part is then is putting that into action. You know, do something, start small. doesn't be too ambitious. Just start small. So it's four things. Accept the fact that this is a reality of life. You know, we are going to be feeling this. And it's okay to feel what the way you're feeling. Okay, how am I coping with that? Mm, is that working? Is that working what I'm doing? Working long hours or if I'm not working long hours, I'm not long Zoom meetings or if I'm not long doing Zoom meetings, I've got no work and I'm just eating, drinking or smoking the crap out of myself. Okay, is that really the way I want to be? Is that the stuff that I really want to change? 
how am I coping there? Is that really the best way to cope? Okay, so what type of life do I want to have? What sort of values do I have? I really want to do something different. Okay, what is it? Be curious about it. Identify one or two things you could do and then implement it. Just do something like that. So there's probably four four stages, four four points of of actions that people could use right now, right this moment, available to you without you know any advertisements. You can just have it right now. Do those four things. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Are you worried about the direction we're heading? Uh, when you think about the world, do you actually think about that? Where does your mind go? Are you very much uh, focused on what's around you and and that's it and, and that helps you through things or do you think about the world and, and sometimes, you know, get concerned about what you're seeing? Uh, well, I often don't think about that too much now and why don't I think about it? You know, I was actually, someone was telling me the other day about, you know, what it's like to be a young person growing up today and you've got global warming and, and oh, no, I was watching Q&A and they were talking about China, you know, China and the influence of China and having impact on our sovereignty and, the potential war of China, and you know, you know, when I grew up, it was, it was, it was the Soviet Union, mm. like it was the the Rocky film, you know, uh, where Rocket Balboa fought the Russian, like yeah. you know, um, it was Afghanistan, it was nuclear war, right, and that that was pretty scary growing up, and uh, so I, I went on many of many a, you know anti anti nuclear rallies and at school and. You know, with school and social justice and all that sort of stuff, and I think the the thing about the world we're living in is that we we're so we can become so uh, blinded to it. Like you know, as soon as we lost lose consciousness of what's happening around us, you know, we we it becomes unconscious. You know, we, we so I, there's a lot of things in the world I can I can choose to be really uh, upset about and angry about, and I, I do do have them. I do have those faults. I have them quite regularly. But I do really try to try to say, okay, what can I do now? Like if I wanted to live a, a political life again to a political life, I could have done that, but I didn't. You know, I didn't. I chose not to do that. But you know, you have got a capacity every every three years to vote a government in or out, right? Keep them in or vote them out, vote a new new party in. You know, I'm a great believer of, of democracy, and uh, but there are things that worry me. You know, what the future of my life, you know, my kids will have, and you know, the environment's a real concern, huge concern. And, and I used to worry a lot more about it, you know, during bushfires, for example. It was a mm. very big issue, you know. But there is a part of me that has a great faith in humanity that we can get out of it, you know, whether it's a false hope. You know, I think there is a, a time. So I, I, I like to think that, uh, you know, at the end of the Back of the Future, you know, the first first film, Back to the Future, when uh, the, the rubbish was used as a fueling, as a fuel for a car, you know, I'm still, I'm still thinking, I'm still waiting for that to happen, you know. <laughs> Uh, like, like when I was watching Get Smart and they had the phone and the and the phone and the shoe, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> listen to this podcast or whatever, remember Get Smart. But you know, like I always think that, <laughs> like eventually, <laughs> we we got a better option. We got it better. Yeah. Be, it doesn't have to be in the shoe. It could be in your hands, right? In your pocket, right? You can keep your so, shoes so on and talk. Yeah. Keep your shoes on. I don't have to do that. So, so I, I have got this sort of teleology about. And the the primacy of science, if we can get you know mm. get out, you know, who would have thought? You know, remember when the vaccine came out and said, "Well, we won't get a vaccine. It'd be hard to get a vaccine. We can ever get a vaccine going." And yeah, look, we got a vaccine. We've got like five or six, we've got ten in the market. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I, I I do I do have fear about the future, but I also have great faith. Thank you. Your podcast, uh, personality portraits. Can you? You know, tell the listeners a bit about it. Spruik it. What is it all about? And, and oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. 
uh, and that wasn't a condition of being appearing as a guest. <laughs> Uh, look, it's 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 largely for uh, to people get a sense of how I how I work with clients, and and it gives a bit of a taster. You know, I take a guest through, you know, ask them to fill out a, a range of surveys that I normally do with my clients. Get them to talk a bit about their life, high points, low points, turning points, how they narrated their story when they were eighteen, and how they write their story now. It sort of talks about personality from a point of view of three layers there's a dispositional part which is a highly genetic highly inherited forms our temperament and then there's a second layer which is around needs and motivations and goals uh, which also happens pretty early in life and and uh, the third layer is a narrative how we narrate our story so the first layer is more about our true self who we really are if you strip away motivations and goals then it's the motivated self and the narrated self and uh, uh, have the pleasure of listening to people's stories from that angle and then give them their portrait of the, who they are, their profile in a way. Like, I like portraits, a far more artistic way of thinking about mm. it than profiling. It sounds like FBI and yeah. <laughs> forensic. Um, and I got up really from just listening to, uh, you know, the, watching the Anne Han, sorry, Ando, yeah, uh, show. And if he's listening, I'd like to get him on as a guest, but, you know, he's, he's refuted every attempts I've made to get him on. And, you know, I've got about, I don't know, I've got about eight shows out and I've interviewed about 16 people so far. So, so it's, it's sort of a beginning process. And for me, it's more, it's not as clearly followed as yours, but as your show, but in a way it's good for the client. So, you know, the guest who's on it, clients can listen to shows and get a sense of how I work and I enjoy doing them. I, I'm more, like I said, I've always been interested in biography, always mm. interested in people's stories and it'd be great to have you on as a guest. I think we've sort of covered a few. A few yeah. Uh, <laughs> explore more deeply uh, in the session that we have. And I like to call them a session because although it's a show is episode, but it's it's like a session. And then, yeah. and that's really just gives a bit of people a bit of a taste about, you know, what does a psychologist, how, how does psychologist work and how do they, what do they look for? Uh, though it's not explicitly sort of expressed that way, but I guess I am a psychologist and I shouldn't shy away from it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's one way people can find out about you. Is there any other areas that people can follow some of your work or some of your thoughts online? Well, I have a regular pot, uh, sort of a, pl- a blog on my on my webpage, uh, yourpsychologist.net.au, uh, Instagram. I've got pretty active there. Pretty much, that's pretty much. Uh, it. I mean, you know, you got to be careful, psychologists. They don't put too much out there. Uh, there is there is a, there is a course I will be doing. Over, uh, I haven't got it down pat yet. But eventually, in the next few months, called the Personality Portrait Online Course, and so that gives people to take people through that stages that I just talked about earlier. Yeah, I like to get more active in that space. I guess if there's a sort of a, an area that I like to develop into is more into the personality sort of area because I think it's under it's not really an area that when people talk about personality they're not they don't really understand it, and I like to educate people more about it because it can help people. Like it's a uh, you know, what holds them back in life, you know, if, oh, gee, I didn't realize that this has been a consistent theme of my life, you know, and if, if, if they knew about it, like if they knew about that stuff and they just said, look, you know, if you actually fixed on this part, right, wouldn't it be good if you could actually do that? And then, you know, you could maybe it can open up a whole different path for you. Right? And that's, that's probably what I like to get into because I think at the moment we, we feel to think, oh, personality is a static thing and, you know, it's not. It's, uh, it's things that, that become... <clears throat> quite uh, quite entrenched, but they don't have to be. Yeah, I do notice that a lot with um, certain people that 
feel stuck because they've just lived that way for however long and it just feels like yeah. that's them. Well, I, I can't change. Yeah, I, I do yeah, see yeah. that. Yeah. No, you can, absolutely. Yeah. My final question, Franco, on the podcast, I ask this to every guest is, have you had a moment of clarity, you know, personally, professionally in your life recently that you can share with us today? Well, I think uh, every day is a moment of clarity. When you make yourself vulnerable, you can have moments of clarity, right? And um, the other day I was working for a client. There was a couple I've seen for a long a while and I was very stuck with them. And being vulnerable with them was important because it, it sort of uh, made me, made them realize, I think it made me realize that um, it's a partnership that we're in and they've got to bring something to the party as well as much as me, right? So I can't solve their uh, their issues by myself and I, and I always feel like I've, that's my that's sort of my role to obviously to help them. But there's a part of me that often there was a moment, there was a real big moment of clarity. The other one, probably the second one that I had was um, sometimes going back, you have to go back to first principles with some people. Like if you go back to your case formulation, so to speak, right? Like in a psychological speak, go back to, you know, why they're here, what some of the issues they're grappling with. And it helped me, it helped them. Right. It really does, you know, and going back over the stuff that you, oh, okay, well, okay. What, what isn't working now, you know, in, in this therapy? What's not working? And sometimes you got to go back and say, okay, well, okay, I missed that. I missed that part of you that I thought was, you know, that I uh, I didn't emphasize as much as before, but now I'm going to emphasize it. And what do you think about that? So that really tells me a lot about the capacity not to be, not to be hung on a bias about what, you know, the, Looking to what's available to you, you know. Sometimes you need to go back, mm. and uh, and it's okay to say, look, you know, I think that we didn't we didn't, we didn't cover that off sufficiently. But you got to set it up like as a, as a you know as a relationship with people and say to people, you know, we are in a relationship, and you know uh, our capacity to to work together is going to be really the most important part here. So I don't know if other people's experiences like others are like that, but. Um, but if you come and see me, that's what you get. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, it needs us to be both together. So I guess that that's the moment of clarity for me in a way is acknowledging I'm not going to get it hundred percent right. And it's an evolving, it's an evolving thing for us. You know? Thank you, Franco. I've really loved our conversation. I've learned a lot, taken a lot out of it. Um, had that good. little mini dissection of, of my uh Your personality life. too, but um, no, but really appreciate looking into yours and you, you know, being um honest and and you know really willing to give a lot of yourself as well so thank you no it's good no great pleasure if you enjoyed the conversation today please subscribe share with your friends and family and leave a review If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.